0: What is up, wrestling fans, and welcome to the next edition of 2001 A Wrestling Odyssey, August edition. And joining me, as always, on this journey back in time is Robert DeFelice.
1: Wow, Callum, here we are, eight months in. How are you feeling? How are you liking this trip back in time?
0: It's getting a little bit boring now that it's only WWF. Yeah, it is. I mean, it started off so exciting with WCW dying and ECW dying and all this other crazy stuff that was taking place. Now the alliance has started, which is fine, but it's it's still all very WWF. Yeah. But that's just the way the I mean, this is the year that wrestling changes forever, so we have to go through the low after the massive explosion that took place earlier on in our journey. But we're still gonna bring you back all of the news and events that took place in August two thousand and one. Fair to say probably not the most exciting month of our calendar, but I hope you stick around and listen to it anyway.
1: I think it's definitely on the nose to say that.
0: Yeah. But um I, I wanted to start off this uh, edition because there's going to be a lot of WWF-related news to go back through on our reheated tags with something not so much completely outside of WWF, but what for, at, in this period of time, probably the most, I guess, collaborative independent show which took place on an annual basis which is the brian pillman memorial show
1: yeah these are always good sources for like wrestling matches that you wouldn't see on tv that were typically very good you know you would see guys like benoit fight william regal i know there's a triple threat tag in this year's um brian pillman memorial these were typically good shows
0: yeah, so if you're not familiar with um, what the Brian Pillman Memorial Show is, it was a massive independent show which took place in order to fund the education of Brian Pillman's uh, children after he passed away in 1997.
1: That's mm-hmm. a really good gesture, and I know, uh, sadly, I think his daughter, Lexi, has since passed away, but we know that his son, uh, Brian Pillman Jr., is
0: doing great things in the world of wrestling for himself now. Absolutely. So these ran. There were four shows in total, ran from '98 to 2001. So this is the very last uh, Brian Pillman Memorial Show. It's the biggest one. 17 matches on this card. Wow! I think WrestleMania like, had it big. Yeah, I was gonna say it's a modern-day WrestleMania card. I wanted to start with this just because, first of all, we're gonna be getting into a lot of WWE minutia, as I said. So it's nice to start with something a little bit different. But also because there are a lot of names on this show, some that would go on to be big stars, some that would just go on to be like bit part players during the two thousands, some returning legends, and some people that just didn't make it anywhere at all. So I wanted to just kind of run down the card, get your thoughts on all of the little bits and pieces, and then we'll move on to the other big news stories of the of the week. I tried to find this online in order to maybe do a review of it, but as far as I'm aware, there's no footage from this show online.
1: It appears the only two that are available are the 2000 edition and the 98 edition.
0: Yeah, so if you want to check those out, especially the 2001 for the um, the Benoit against uh, Steve Regal match at the time. That's a great match. Um, it, um, most people were in agreement with the idea that that was the match that got uh, William Regal rehired by WWE.
1: Yeah, oh, I, I think was- they. They went so far as to put that on the Benoit DVD that they did in 2004 because it's just, it's such a great
0: example of why those two were some of the best in the field. Alright, so let's break this down match by match. We're not going to, obviously haven't seen the matches, we can't do a review of them, but we can just talk about the people involved in it. And the first one was a match between a very young at the time, Nigel McGuinness. Ah against a, a wrestler known as The Machine, but who would be uh, better known later on as Doug Basham. Really? Yes. Yeah.
1: I'm looking at the card myself. I can see uh, Danny's on the show, but I didn't know Doug Basham went by The Machine, and this is super cool for Nigel McGuinness. I actually think that this match was featured on the 2020 special.
0: Yeah, but- it potentially was. I mean, I've um, I've heard stories from like certain like people that were in know and were following independent wrestling at the time that Nigel McGuinness is one of those people who started off really, really, really bad. And then by the mid 2000s was somehow had become one of the best wrestlers in the world. Just by, as I think as Nigel says as well, his own like hard work and perseverance and not willing to give up on his dream of becoming a great wrestler. You know what?
1: I think that's okay. I, I like stories like that instead of hearing about, you know the Randy Ortons who are oh the minute they stepped into a ring we knew that they were going to be something. I like hearing oh wow, they sucked and they really worked at it and honed their craft. Uh,
0: so the match following that was the tag team of Rob Conway. No him. Yeah, the um a former NWA champion. People don't know as well as uh, a a WWE tag team champion. The Iron Man, I believe he likes to call himself. Yeah, uh, after the con man as well. Yeah,
1: his, his, his theme song. His theme song is one of the so bad it's good theme songs in the history of WWE. Yeah.
0: So he teamed up with Ron Waterman, who was, who was a, a semi-active wrestler more a MMA fighter. He did some Japan stuff, didn't he? I believe so. This was at a point in time where New Japan was very much in the market for uh MMA fighters and a lot of other Japanese promotions like Ryzen as well. And I know I've also seen a dark match in which
1: Waterman teams with Lesnar to go against Rico and Randy Orton.
0: That's a, yeah, <laughs> That's something. Well, they were teaming up against another OVW tag team known as the Disciples of Sin. I know who Sin is, and I think I know who Damian is. So yeah, so Sin, if you're not familiar, is Jim Cornette's girlfriend, I believe? His wife. Oh, his wife now. Stacey. Yeah. yeah. So she was the manager, Sin, and her tag team were her disciples, who were essentially a very low-rent, if you could believe it, a low-rent ascension, which is about as low-rent as you can get of anything, really. <laughs> so, but they never, I don't think they ever, they never got promoted onto the main roster, as far as I'm aware.
1: Is Damien not uh Wolfie D slash from uh, TNA?
0: You would know better than I would in that regard, potentially. I, I know that, um, obviously I never made it onto the WWE main roster, but if they managed to explore other pl- avenues, then, like, good on them. Are
1: you surprised that they never made it onto the main
0: roster, specifically, uh, Sin? I know that Jim Cornette still had some leeway, but he was pretty much out of power in WWE by around about, like, the mid 2000s like, still running IVW inside like that. So So I am wrong. Damien is not uh Slash. Damien is a guy named Brian Logan, and I don't recognize him from anything. Well, he doesn't have a Wikipedia page, so he means nothing to me. So <laughs> move on to... And, and somebody else that didn't have a uh, Wikipedia page, J.R. <laughs> Ryder, who I've tried to have a look for, but I can't find anything about him, and who had a match with Richard Pound.
1: I, I tried to look up Richard Pound, couldn't find much of anything
0: relevant. As far so, so as I can tell from my like, base level research, he was pretty much exclusively, all his work was done in Stampede Wrestling. So he didn't really extend too much further. I just find it hilarious that if you like just have his abbreviate his name, it's Dick Pound.
1: Yeah, that's, that's why <laughs> the name makes me
0: laugh. <sighs> uh, so then we had Chad Collier. Who wrestled briefly for TNA, I believe, and so I think that's pretty much it. He wrestled in the X division for TNA for a, a couple of years against Donovan Morgan, who again I really can't find anything else about. Apparently, he's best known as Donovan Morgan, and that's a name that I'm completely unfamiliar with.
1: Uh, yeah, I know Chad Collier was familiar to me, but I couldn't like pick him
0: out of the lineup. The next one's a little uh, more. Well, the next one's yeah, is a little more
1: interesting.
0: So Cody Hawk, who is. Again, a bit of a nobody, but it was teaming with Lance Cade, who well, now deceased think... last, Lance Cade, unfortunately, a uh, graduate from Shawn Michaels training school, wrestled in WWE, former world tag team champion.
1: And I think it's better known that Cody Hawk is the trainer
0: of one John Moxley. Oh, that's that's good to hear. And they defeated the Island Boys, Ekmo and Kimo, who you'd later know as Umaga and Rosie. Did this match only last three minutes, is the question I have. Uh, unfortunately, I don't give timings for the matches on uh, the Brian uh, Pillman show, so we'll never know. But if it lasted any any longer than that, then they weren't living the gimmick as they should. Damn it. Uh, next match, a very young Randy Orton defeating Flash Flanagan, who is a name that I recognize but don't really know anything about. Flash Flanagan is very much a name i recognize as well and
1: it might just be from listening to a lot of the ovw <laughs> retrospectives that jim cornett provides but the name seems like i should know more about him but upon
0: looking at him here i don't know him at all so there's a match between the uh DeMarja and hardcore which i know there. is danny basham yeah that's about what i know here um How's that? uh, Is
1: that not the most creative wrestler name ever? I'm going to call myself the Damage Joe, but I'm going to spell it like this because I'm edgy. Like, that's the most
0: creative wrestler name I've ever heard. They defeated a team called the A-Squad, who were Chet Jablonski and Dean Jablonski, who I know absolutely nothing about. They, again, no Wikipedia page, no memory, out, out out of mind, essentially, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, what is all that? We have another team of supposed bro- well, that was a team of at least potentially supposed brothers, but we have a team of real brothers: Charlie Hoss and Russ Haas. Russ Haas, that's such a terrible name.
1: <laughs> unfortunately, I don't think did he pass away.
0: Uh, There's gotta be. He never made it to WWE, and I think that's why. Yeah, he uh, passed away in wow December of that of that month. Woof. December of that year, December yeah December two thousand and one. How did? Really, he had a heart attack in September. Age 27. And then,
1: wow, and then later on that year he died of heart failure. He must have had some heart problems, but that's unfortunate. I know, we know Charlie Haas would go on to do great things and be one of the more underutilized
0: players in the wrestling game, but cool match. As yes, they had a match against uh, Steve Bradley, who's kind of just somebody who's wandered around the North American independent circuit for the most time, and Rico Constantino, who is one of the more underrated people of the ruthless aggression era, I think, I feel.
1: I think that Rico was, because of the gimmick and what they did with him, it seems odd, but when you go back and you look at him, he's like a freaking jack dude and was pegged to be one of the Like, big stars. He was a little on the older side, and I think that might be why they held him back a
0: little bit. Yeah, I I believe his age was a big factor. I think it was a case of a lot of people... When I've gone back and read through a lot of these observers, a lot of people talk about how good Rico was in comparison to people. You talk about that big OVW class of Brock Lesnar, John Cena, uh, Randy Orton and Shelton Benjamin and people of that ilk. You'd, you'd read through the OVW reports, people would say how Rico was the best out of all of them in the ring. That's insane. At least at that point yeah. in time. Yeah, like you just, you don't think of that when you think of Rico, you know? No. Uh, then we had a fatal four-way match for the, uh, Heartland Wrestling Alliance Cruiserweight Championship. Uh, Matt Stryker. Cruiserweight okay. at the time. Uh, defeating Chad Collier, who somehow did double duty on this show—the only guy to do double duty. Now this uh, is
1: Striker with a Y, right?
0: Yes. So, okay, so
1: this is not this is not Striker. No, he's not Striker. Yeah he's, mm. yeah, he's,
0: yeah, he's the teacher. I'm pretty sure that Striker with a Y is another guy. Uh, no, that's a uh, no. If you go on to oh, potentially not. I, yeah. I, I t- you click on it, you click on it on the, on the, cause I'm on the Wikipedia page for the Brian Pilmer Show. You click on it and it gives to Match Striker. But then it has a really short disclaimer on top of it saying, not to be confused with Match Striker. <laughs> yeah, well, there <laughs> you go. The so, striker
1: with this... a
0: Y is another dude who uh, helped train Ambrose, I believe. Alright. Well, he, Chad Collier was also in this match as well. Uh, Shark Boy, who I assume was the real Shark Boy. Yeah. And, and Pepper Parks, who is, uh, Ali's husband. Futter, really? Yeah. Ali's wow, husband.
1: he's wrestling this far back, huh?
0: Mm. And we had a match for the, um, HWA Heavyweight Championship, which was Nick Dinsmore, better known in later years as Eugene, defeating Ray Steele, who I have no idea was some relation, if, who is, <laughs> I assume he's not a relation of George D. Animal Steele, but yeah. I can't be certain about that. He's
1: very close to Ace Steele as well, the yeah. guy who turns him punk. Uh, No,
0: upon looking at him, he is very much not. Uh, But After that, we move on to a match which featured two legends in the game at that point. Terry Taylor, the Red Rooster, uh, defeating Bobby Eaton.
1: Apparently, uh, Ricky Steamboat's the guest referee for this match. Yeah. And on what planet does the Red Rooster defeat the Midnight Express's Bobby Eaton?
0: Well, on what planet does Ricky Steamboat not be one of the people in this match (laughs) and be a referee instead? (laughs)
1: Well, see, Ricky Steamboat was still operating under the assumption that he was done, and he felt satisfied with his career. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting booking decision, in my opinion.
0: Uh We had the NWA World Heavyweight Championship defended, but Steve Carino, the champion at the time, defeated David Flair. The of king of old school, versus
1: yeah. a guy who probably owns a legitimate version of the
0: 1980s NWA World Championship. You, you'd assume so. It's uh, he's a he's a park ranger now, David Flair, I believe. What? That's crazy. Yeah, he um at the time he was being trained in OVW after being released from WCW when that went under, and I think he only lasted into 2002 in WWF before retiring from wrestling. Then we have Mark Henry defeating Hugh Morris. Mark Henry, who at the time was a, who was working at OVW in order to you know become good at wrestling. And it's it's really it's amazing because you read through you you know how Mark Henry Hall of Famer former World Heavyweight Champion Hall of Pain gimmick World Strongest Man all this great stuff you you read back through some of his reports from people talking about his time in OVW and saying this guy's done like this guy can't can't get it he's not progressing fast enough if he comes back to the main roster then he's going to be one of the worst guys on it. But he had that massive contract, that massive guaranteed contract that they gave him for, I think it was 12 years they signed him for. 10 years, 12 that's, years, something like that. See, that's insane,
1: because here's a guy who had been, like, a huge piece of the attitude era with the sexual chocolate stuff. And then he goes to OVW. I think he gets sent back up to the main roster, and they start doing the um, the World's Strongest Man stuff with him.
0: Yeah, they and start And then to- he leaves again. Yeah, they push him back up after the, um, he appears at the Arnold Classic. And he becomes, I don't know if he was the first man, but definitely one of the only men to hold, to lift up the, um, Arnold dumbbell. Which is, like, an incredibly heavy weight with a really short grip. So it makes it incredibly difficult to lift it up, and he's one of the few people to have lifted it up. But, ah. uh, so they, so they use that to build up a world's strongest man gimmick. He comes back in 2002 for a little while. I think he gets injured and then he comes back in 2003 with Teddy Long. And then he disappears for like four years. Yeah, no. Comes back afterwards, like taking the Undertaker out and appearing at, uh, like wrestling Kurt Angle for the world championship and fighting Undertaker in a casket match. And he, he defeated, uh, Hugh Morris on this one because he couldn't catch a break. Build him up. At least in that gimmick. The only women's match on the show, Lita defeating Victoria. So this was before Victoria had uh, debuted well she she debuted as a hoe for the uh, for the the godfather, but she hadn't made her in ring debut as Victoria yet. She'd have to wait until late two thousand two for that to happen.
1: I that's one of the weirdest things you could ever say. She debuted
0: as a hoe. Well uh, so did Lita.
1: Well yeah. <laughs> In
0: WWE at the very least.
1: God, eh. It- they would go on to be two of the best. So you get a glimpse of that here. I hope
0: Evan courageous against Chris Candido. Evan courageous had been, he'd be, his contract had been acquired by WWF in the merger with WCW, but he was let go pretty soon afterwards. And Chris Candido, the former skip and, and again, another one who sadly passed away too soon. Candido yeah, was
1: really good. Like I can imagine this match might be one of the best
0: wrestled on the show, even though I think that's, probably this next match coming up. Yeah, but... I, I'd also imagine if it was one of the better matches, it'd probably be pretty much carried by Candido, because Courageous was he was a very good high flyer, but I don't think he really got the fundamentals down at any point.
1: I don't know much about Courageous, except I think that that's a great way to spell that
0: name. Again, thinking of that like
1: creator wrestler thing and three count.
0: So the next one was a tag team match with Perry Satin and D Malenko defeating Raven and Justin Credible. I want to this... watch this match. Yeah, this was billed as a WWF versus ECW match. Funny enough, this is Dean Malenko's third to last match of his career. What was his last match? He wrestled a dark match, a, like a tryout match for Mystico in WWE. No. Yeah, that was his final ever match. So yeah, yeah just just wrestling a dark match on Against the behalf. Against Sin Cara? Like yeah, the original Sin
1: yeah, wow.
0: yeah, yeah, just I think it was before he jo- actually signed WWE. This was just a tryout match, I think in 2009 this was his last ever match, but this was his final match. He never wrestled in officially for the WWF ever again pro- wow. post this match, so. So, yeah, this was like the, the curtain call. Demon and even cut a primer afterwards saying that this is pretty much done after this. So, it was a good way for him to go out teaming with Saturn to defeat Raven and Just Incredible. It probably would have been a good match to watch. I would love to find
1: this match. I'm sure it's pretty good. What do you think about it? just
0: incredible? Underrated, overrated? Well, at the at the moment, I'd say if he needs all the help that he can get right now. Yes, <laughs> I word. would agree so, with that. So, but I, I I don't know. Like I think I've seen some stuff that he did with La- Lance Storm and the Impact players. I thought that like he's good, but I don't. See, I never saw him as anything beyond a tag team guy. So when he was a former ECW champion, I thought. Yeah, this is a point in time when you've got nobody, and then the main event: the Hardy Boys defeating Edge and Christian and Diamond Dallas Page and Canyon in a one triple of, threat tactic. One
1: of these tactics. things is not like the other.
0: Yeah, I think you mentioned that. Uh, you mentioned that when we were talking about this like off air, but the weird thing is that one of these teams at the time was the world wrestling federation tag team champions and it's not either of the two teams you're thinking of
1: it should be the wwf teams but no, of course it's wcws Canyon and ddp because
0: the alliance yeah it's one of those questions where you ask uh which one which one of these three teams is the world tag team champions i'll give you three guesses (laughs) and you'll still get it wrong so that like i mean i'm sure i'm sure it was a good match these guys all are great wrestlers at the time so I, th- I think I think he probably would have delivered quite good as a main event. It just it feels a bit weird that a triple threat tag team match is the main event of this show. I would bet that it's a good match.
1: DDP, for me, I have this weird cutoff with him where even in WCW, as soon as I see the hair go, I'm like, all right, we're in past his prime. DDP, he's got a very he's got a very short window of prime,
0: but it was really good. So that's kind of it for the Brian Kamaro show, just a nice little look into the like one of these final big interbr interpromotional independent shows that uh that just shines a light on what the future of wrestling was holding for certain people. So move from that straight into actual big WWF news. And the first big story we're gonna cover is WWF versus WWF. So okay. it was it's, cool. so even though they're even though they're fighting WCW and ECW, their big actual fight going on at this point in time was against the World Wildlife Fund. So Oh, oh right,
1: right, okay, WWF,
0: okay. Yeah, it's yeah. So so at this point obviously there's there's a long standing history to this and the fact that the World Wildlife Fund was founded in nineteen sixty one. So they were the ones to first use the initials WWF because at that time, or at least from nineteen sixty three onwards, it was the WWWF was the promotion until they shortened it in 1979 so they had they'd agreed they had a limited use agreement with the world wildlife fund that they could use their name for certain connotations and situations but it had to be like a limited amount essentially but after wwf launched the wwf.com website that was essentially seen as a breach of that agreement and so the world wildlife fund took them to court that's um, such bullshit because they didn't they don't even use wwf dot
1: com. They use wwf dot org.
0: I, I mean that is true, but I think it's along the lines of I'm I'm kind of okay with what they're doing because it's a it's a it's a big acronym but like, to have at this point in time. And they did have it first. So it it's like uh Finders Keepers, that type of thing. <laughs> like school, school ground stuff really. Essentially, they uh they won a court case on August 9th, 2001, in, held in the UK, which meant that it, essentially it was just holding WWF liable for using the trademark, and WWF would take them to an appeal over it, but, but decided by May of 2002 that they would change their branding to be WWE instead of WWF.
1: I guess nowadays it's for the better. I... I guess I've lived with it longer as WWE at this point. I'm used to it. But I remember that first year of just... It was the
0: weirdest thing to now call it WWF. Essentially, part of the reason why the World Wildlife Fund decided to take this action was... It it says in uh, one of their quotes, one of their statements in the uh, court case, the fund was particularly concerned by criminal proceedings taken against the Federation in the U.S., and by an article in Penthouse alleging its wrestlers and employees were involved in violence, drug free for alls, sexual harassment, pedophilia, and rape.
1: Well, I can't imagine that any of that
0: is true. No, uh, again, probably for liability's sake, we have to say that we have no knowledge of well, a lot of those have, things we have being true.
1: Zero knowledge. Uh, I, mean, but... I,
0: mean, I think we can safely say that violence and violence drug rules and drug free for alls are pretty pretty like, nailed on. We I think we can pretty much legally say those things. But uh, the other ones but, we might just leave well enough alone. Yeah, you. yeah. But I will
1: say, I think WWE and the term entertainment fits, fits them better. But I do think WWF, for whatever reason, flows better.
0: Yeah, I think it's it does sound better. But WWE and the entertainment aspect does suit what their style of, their brand of entertainment is. So, it's, it's interesting looking, like delving into a little bit more, like starting from the 1000th episode of Raw in July 2012, the, um, WWF Scratch logo is no longer censored in any archival footage that WWE presents.
1: Yeah, that, that was another hard part of it. Like getting those anthology DVDs at any time anyone said WWE, everything was bleeped out or the, the logo would be blurred. That was, it made it really, annoying to watch certain pieces of footage
0: Mm. yeah but now now they've at least come to some sort of agreement some sort of like just equal footing where they can still have that brand new footage now that it's firmly established that they're wwe they've got they're no longer wwf they have no relation to that acronym anymore so how did you find out do you remember how you found out well i started watching when they had become oh So, so so I didn't start watching until around about July or August of 2002. So by that point in time they had been called WWE.
1: So I was I recall being on the website and looking through results for a, uh, past events and I was like that's so weird why did everything say uh whatever it was, it was like Yokozuna pinned Hulk Hogan to become the WWE champion. I'm like what a typo that is.
0: And then you watch Raw and you learn that Get the F out. Okay. Well, speaking of another big change that took place that really kind of links to the ruthless aggression era, uh, SmackDown had a set redesign, and it's the start of the Big Fist era for SmackDown. This...
1: Okay. The Big Fist and the Beautiful People intro Mm. is probably what I go to when I mentally think of SmackDown.
0: It's one of the big ones. It's the SmackDown shut your mouth theme. And that is the first wrestling game I remember owning. So that's a, that was a big one as well. They decided to, essentially they set up the set being redesigned by Rhino Gore and Chris Jericho through the original stage at some point, like in the week before. And then they came back it's so a completely new layout. Pyro goes off. You see the fist clearly coming from the top of the stage. The new, the the whole new layout because the ramp was different. The 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 features on the sides of the fist on the stage were pretty different as well. It was like a pretty sizable change for them because nowadays everything kind of looks the same. I'm dying for a sizable change when they move to Fox. Yeah, it would, it would be good. Uh, the Beautiful People uh, theme was introduced with a, a new video package introduction, obviously performed by Marilyn Manson. Did you they know? Tried to, yeah, they
1: tried oh. to use this one before, didn't they? With, in 97 with Raw?
0: Yeah, I was about to say that. You, you jumped the gun on knowing this side of thing before I could even ask you if you knew it. But uh, yeah, they tried to use it as an intro for Raw for a few weeks before reverting back to... I can't remember what the actual music was called but i can Uh, i can i can picture the music in my head it's thorn in
1: your eye it's by anthrax essentially it's it's what you think of when you think of rise war it's that iconic like guitar riff and as i say this anyone who's listening can perfectly hear it in their heads
0: oh yeah i just i don't know the names of it like song titles always go out of my head every now and again but i can picture the music going through
1: I actually think they probably would have been better off sticking with Beautiful People for Raw because that's when the song was like brand new and it would have been seen as like this fresh change but it also fits Smackdown very well.
0: Do you like those um those videos that people sometimes make on YouTube where they use like modern wrestlers and modern uh like camera shots and stuff like that and put it to the old Beautiful People music or other like retro themes?
1: I love them, and they make me sad because when you hear, like for me, when I hear across the nation for Raw, like that's Monday Night Raw for me, that 2002 intro, and it's the same thing here, I really wish that they would tap into that again, it's part of the reason why I like the modern day NXT usage of stuff like Slipknot, because it's a great you know, it's edgy. It, it feels like you're getting ready to fight and not like, alright, here's a pop show and we're going to be fun and entertaining. It feels like a
0: fight. See, when I think of uh, the Raw themes, I always go with the, um, I can't remember again, titles, just go out of my head, but the, um, I think it was the one following the Across the Nation one. Oh, Papa Roach with the To Be Loved? I think so. It might have been, yeah. The one where is. it
1: looks like like the, they're just going over buildings?
0: It might have been that one. It was the, It's the one that says, like, take the best yeah, it up and yeah. gargoyle, that one
1: it's yeah. uh, it's Papa Roach, to be loved yeah. and that is another great intro for Monday Night Raw. for me when I th- when I think of the decline of WWE I think of uh, Burn it to the ground and nickelback
0: oh <laughs> uh, yeah that's uh, it's always nickelback but I will, I will say nickelback. that this is this this is one of my favorite Smackdown things but I'm a big fan of the current Smackdown theme I like the um like, it makes it feel like it makes it feel like smackdown is the underdog like the idea that they had to fight to survive that kind of thing i think it's it really it, when i first heard it when they did the rebrand in 2016 it, it felt like yeah this is this is smackdown
1: i really just wish and this is another weird modern trend there's no intros anymore
0: no it is it is yeah it's it, 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 it does feel like more stuff is just being taken away. It's like the WWE video games. They're taking stuff out so they can put it back. in a There's also no intros feel... there. Yeah.
1: Like, what is that? I... We talk about the Beautiful People entrance. The SmackDown Shut Your Mouth just literally has the SmackDown intro, and it's
0: perfect. Well, we spoke about the um, set now. Let's go into the actual TV that was taking place in uh, August 2001. Not a huge amount to talk about, except... Lots and lots of title matches. I was yeah. talking. I was talking to you about this earlier. So, essentially, on Raw and SmackDown in the entire month of August, there were nineteen tag t- nineteen title matches. That's that's obnoxious. And there's and only eight
1: shows total.
0: Nine, technically, because uh, there were there were f- there were five SmackDowns and four Raws that took place in August. But still, that's a, an average of two title matches per show, which okay. is. I i did some because i'm sad like this i did some counting up for how many title matches have taken place on raw up until the latest episode which if you're listening to this we're recording on the 23rd of august so it was the 19th of august is the last episode of raw there were t- there have been 24 title matches from january the 1st till that date and so there was 19 just in this month alone again across raw and smackdown so it's a little bit different but you get what I mean. It's a lot of title matches to be taking place on a very short window of time.
1: I would argue that there's more championships now. It's, it's part of that Attitude Era culture of, you know, everything's a title match and you can't look away. They still very much had that on Raw and
0: SmackDown. So this is the month that Rock kind of cements his return after coming back in the last episode of the July edition. So he's back. He's the top babyface face now on at least the one side of the coin, because he's the one who's fighting Booker T for the WSW championship. He's concentrating on feuding with him and Shane McMahon. Where on the other side, we're building up Kurt Angle as the top babyface face to take on Steve Austin for the WWF championship.
1: This this is a really weird portion of WWE where Austin's the main heel On the Babyface side, you've got The Rock, Chris Jericho, and Kurt Angle. And there's nobody really on the heel side to kind of match with Angle and Jericho. I think at the time they are using Booker and Rhino.
0: Yeah, those were the two big ones. Which,
1: you know, God bless them for using the last WCW champion and the last ECW champion. but They're just not
0: on the same level.
1: Yeah, they're just not.
0: No, it was a very difficult thing, especially there were a lot of segments where The Rock is, I think it was on an edition back then where Booker T does come out to interrupt him and Rock does his Who in the blue hell are you? And I know I know that's The Rock's thing and he's done that to everybody but it would have been nice if he'd have done that and then said, hang on I do know you, you're the WCW champion and then you start to establish him a little bit It just felt no. a bit of a a straight up burial but we're used to that now in the already in the alliance side of things and I feel like
1: this is a really bad precedent for what we see now with maybe legends going after modern guys where it's just like hey your programming isn't as good as my programming you suck so it's part of the reason that why as a character growing up I never liked The Rock he just was such a dick you know
0: yeah I, I don't think anyone would disagree with that but uh so among the title matches were some significant title changes so ddp and canyon became the as we discussed wwf world tag team champions when they defeated the apa on the episode of smackdown and then on that same episode of smackdown the undertaker and kane defeated chuck Plumbo and sean o'hare to become the wcw tag team champions so we had a WWF team with the WCW titles and a WCW team with the WWF titles. Super confusing, and it also made Canyon a double champion because he was also the United States champion as well, who which many people forget because his reign was so completely unmemorable with that title. You uh, know what's
1: interesting about that is wasn't he just like given?
0: Yeah, he the was handing it. To he t- yeah, he was handed it to by Booker T so he can concentrate on the world title. Other championships that took place, we see at this point in time, this month, is the birth of the Hurricane. Shane Helms becomes the Hurricane, becomes a superhero, deals with all that side of things, and he wins the European Championship over uh, Matt Hardy. Uh,
1: That's interesting, knowing it's those two working together. Uh, Yeah. Hurricane, I like the Hurricane,
0: you know, I always thought that was a fun gimmick. Uh, Tachiri wins his first title in WWF when he wins the light heavyweight championship, which we'll obviously talk about a little. We'll talk about what happened afterwards on the SummerSlam show. We'll se- see a few other little bits of like television that I obviously didn't watch immediately at the time, but I've retrospectively remembered as big moments. August sees the infamous Milko Mania segment after, in the middle of a Steve Austin appreciation night.
1: I did watch that segment live, and you know, I got to tell you, I think everybody misses the boat on the actual funny bit, which was
0: the alliance singing "You Are the Wind Beneath My Wings" to Steve Austin. Oh, uh, hearing Stephanie! I've, I remember going back to listen to that and hearing Stephanie's wine pitch. <laughs> yeah, she's she so grating. I mean, she's an awesome heel, but it's so grating, and it's too yeah. much nowadays. But um, I, no, the funny thing about that one is. Uh, uh, as per usual, Sean Stasiak running out and just hitting his head off the top of the um, the milk truck and then being sprayed by angle on the floor when he's spraying everyone else with milk. I thought, I mean, I know it's a cheap rip off, but as cheap rip offs go, that was pretty great.
1: It's a funny moment. It's uh, I get the whole milk thing now, but it always came across as weird to me that they're like, "What a dork! He drinks his milk instead of beer." Like if promoting good health habits is a bad thing.
0: We had um, another infamous promo, or i have to say infamous, but at the time it was a really seen as a really huge, great promo segment. I think it still is now, but obviously in 2019 it can be taken the wrong way, which is the um, in the midst of the Chris Jericho Stephanie McMahon rivalry. Oh there's my this, god! There's this really long but hilarious promo segment where Jericho essentially puts up on the title Tron a picture of Stephanie McMahon from a year ago and a picture of Stephanie McMahon at that time in, like, 2001. And let's just say a couple of things on Stephanie's body had developed in that period of time. Yeah, I mean, she was certainly drinking her milk. Yeah, so he, so he essentially cuts all sorts of promos, the stuff along the lines of calling, like, when she was standing with Rhino calling her it the gore and the whore. <laughs> basically uh saying that like she should discuss their issues together at a hooters down the road or anything along those lines but like constantly calling her a slut constantly saying that she's been with everybody in the r- locker room pieing her in the face tr- like drawing attention to th- her implants everything along those lines
1: he would frequently say things like gosh stephanie you sure are the breast i mean best uh they had a great rivalry as like the the cool douche that everybody likes against the bratty billion dollar princess, and he basically got over by calling her a filthy, dirty, disgusting bottom feeding trash bag hoe. Yeah, and
0: I'd... I don't think you could do that today, do you? No, you definitely couldn't do that. But I think I think Chris Jericho would be one of the first ones to admit that, especially in WWE, Stephanie McMahon is one of the the big contributions in him getting over as big as he was. Stephanie man. He,
1: he does actually attribute to him getting over with Stephanie because he says, you know, they, they put him with China initially in 2000
0: and he didn't like that pairing, but it was actually his second feud with a woman that got him over. And also in that segment, the essentially the Rock's feud with Booker T was built around the idea that Rock thought Booker T was stupid. And so we'll talk about how he can do the, um. oh, what is 2 plus 2, Booker? Oh, I know the answer to that. It's Thomas Jefferson, sucker. <laughs> <laughs> I don't...
1: Like, it's funny, but it's just, it's so demeaning and childish that, again, I don't know if you could do that now. Like, I don't know if, like, if that would fly today, if uh Seth Rollins basically said, hey, Bron, you're stupid.
0: yeah. If they still on the lines of, and also during that promo as well, I think it's one of the only instances of a WWF superstar using the term motherfucker because he calls um, Shane man the Silver Spoon motherfucker. And they, and if you hear like the, because there's an uncensored version of that on YouTube, you can visibly, like, you can pick it up of him saying that word. But obviously when they did the live broadcast, it would have been leaked out. But, uh, that's uh, a shame. I think the most recent time they used the word motherfucker was, I think Vince said it to Shane during there.
1: When Shane came
0: back and he just said it under his breath at one point.
1: He legit says good, because I'm going to get to watch you have one last fucking beating. And it's just like,
0: Uh, what? (laughs) Yeah, and so there, there are a few good segments along those lines. There was a lot of defections to the alliance at this point in time. So Test and Ivory both joined the alliance at this point test due to the fact that he'd been in the previous month beaten up by the apa because they assumed that he was the snitch when it was in fact stone cold steve austin well actually what i don't i don't know if it was stone cold is it was stone cold or paul Heyman was the snitch but they accused test because test was buddies with the man
1: i don't know i never i didn't like this time period because it's basically
0: hey you want to be a heel be in the alliance yeah and but i think it, the thing that annoyed me most about that is the fact that Test is completely justified in joining the alliance because he did get beaten up by his own team and it, the team assumed he was a traitor and he wasn't, and so of course he's going to turn your back on them. You turned your back on him first, just yeah. So and so it just it's a sign of like people making. I I like heels that are justifiable, but that's too justifiable. It's it's yeah. not like. Yeah, it's it's going too far the wrong way. And Ivory was brought in by the Alliance in order to train up the uh, uh Tory Wilson and Stacey Keebler. That was the storyline, essentially, that she was given.
1: And they went absolutely nowhere with that, because I don't think I ever recall anything about Ivory
0: in, in the Alliance. No, well, towards the end of the month as well, Tory Wilson starts turning a bit more babyface because she starts a relationship with Tajira, who's obviously on the WWF side of things. I think. Also is it odd be... that
1: out of everybody we just mentioned, that Tori is one of the only ones in the
0: Hall of Fame? Mm. No, I mean, there's there's a few. I don't, I don't. I assume the Hurricane will get in at some point. I mean, out of all the ones, so Booker's in the Hall of Fame, Rock will be in the Hall of Fame, Jericho will be in the Hall of Fame, Angle and Austin, DDP. There's there's plenty of people that will be in the Hall of Fame one day. Yeah we just waiting on the right time to put them in. Um, so just that was kind of it for TV. There wasn't anything like super, super special. It's a pretty similar case in uh, Tough Enough as well, because at this point the ratings for Tough Enough and the novelty of it is starting to wear a little thin on people. A lot of people obviously remember Tough Enough as being, uh, as I say, a breaking piece of reality television. But by about four or five weeks in, there's only so many different wrestling drills or things like that you can show that will k- keep people's interest. And Daryl was gone, and Daryl was the big villain to start with, and everyone else was considered pretty bland. Yeah, and I would agree with that because I mean, I'm in the contestants. They occasionally had obviously w- actual wwf wrestlers on who did have a lot of personality, but they were fleeting in appearances. And Maven wasn't really he obviously had a a, a good backstory in the fact that. I think his, his mother at the time was dealing with cancer. So he was going back to, he had to leave the house for a little while to go check on her and come back. So he, he had that story behind him. But everyone else was just, you know, just there.
1: Yeah, I, it sucks that they've done so many, uh, tough enoughs and I can maybe
0: name a handful of guys throughout all of the seasons that really matter. There was another piece of TV, which is like a slight bit of interest. Um, Are you familiar with the UPN show Manhunt? Manhunt? N- no. Originally, this was supposed to be a show that uh, WDF planned to produce, or at least co-produce, but after the purchase of WCW that kind of took priority, and so they never got around to doing it. But it was a show on UPN which had people like, people being uh, bounty hunters, and they were Chasing contestants, and the contestants had to stay away from bounty hunters as long as possible to win the total cash prize. So, so contestants were essentially fugitives. And one of the bounty hunters is sixteen-time world heavyweight J- champion John Cena. roles wow. Yeah, in one of his first like roles, he was obviously at that point in time working in OVW. but he was brought on to be one of the bounty hunters in this show. It was essentially it was terrible. In reality, even though they said that it was a reality show, it was all scripted because they tried essentially a a pilot where it was reality based and they thought it was too boring. So they decided to script it instead and it was still too boring. So it received a 1.1 rating on its first show and then was pulled after only six episodes. But it's just like an interesting tidbit that that was saying that John Cena's first real foray into television just ended so abruptly.
1: Yeah, uh, Cena, he'd probably make a good Bounty Hunter. You know, what this does remind me of, That you, know, you said WWE wanted to produce that. They wanted to bring a Steve Blackman Bounty Hunter show to the
0: network. I don't know <laughs> whatever happened there, but yeah. During this time as well, there was a, another WWF show debuting, especially this now we talk nowadays about Burnout. At this point in time, they were still introducing more and more shows. Are you familiar with WWF XS?
1: I loved that show because it was one of the first shows that ever did the From the Vault section. So I
0: got to see a lot of bits and pieces of classic matches through
1: WWF WWFXS.
0: Yeah, so this was originally hosted by Jonathan Coachman and Trish Stratus. Uh, just a Saturday night show. Essentially, it was typical with the type of bottom line, this week in WWE, that kind of thing. Just a talk show where they had occasional wrestlers on. They covered what happened on previous shows, showed a few clips, and then moved on. Really nothing special. I think it lasted a couple of years. Trish was eventually replaced by Terry Runnels, but very little else really changed. It, I think it was meant to try and recapture the um, fun and excitement that Livewire used to have. But, um, yeah, and they never really did. No, a, a lot of that is put onto the fact that it was Jonathan Coachman hosting it, and he doesn't have any... He, at this point in time, he had very little... Experience in the wrestling circle, so essentially that was seen as a detriment to the show. Uh, a few other bits and pieces. They started um, discussions at this point on Jim Ross was had met up with Rey Mysterio in order to discuss details, but Rey Mysterio ended up not joining WWF because his contract with uh, WCW, his time Warner contract, should I say, wouldn't expire until the end of 2001. And then they decided not to bring him on until the brand split happened, because they would need more wrestlers to fill out all the shows. So, he joined, ended up joining in May 2002. Actually, no, June 2002, before it was, before it was May um, it was Actually, June.
1: I bet it was July. I had no good, to, like, right before the he, summer he, sa- he,
0: he signed in June, but he, I don't think he actually okay. debuted until late June or July. Yeah, so... Won't see Mysterio on our entire 2001 journey, unless he appears in one of the independent shows that we may end up reviewing. Thank uh, God they put the mask back on him. Yeah, uh, that caused a lot of controversy with uh, the Lucha Libre powers that be. Uh, like, who...
1: like, don't get me wrong, like that's a, he's got a good-looking face, but the entire marketing
0: is the mask. Oh yeah, that was saying that is one of the biggest idiotic points of the entire run of WCW is that Eric Bischoff thought he was more marketable without a mask. Because there are some things that Eric Bischoff, like I'm that some things he was very much a creative genius on, and some in some instances he was a complete fucking moron. But well, I see how much of that creative genius and how much of that moron side that he brings to his role in SmackDown going forward. Uh, someone who was signed to a developmental deal in WWE, though, was Charmel. Uh, I know her. Yeah, uh, obviously, Charmelle Huffman, Booker T's w- wife. Was brought on it, actually, on a true developmental deal. She wasn't brought in to be a, uh, like, backstage interview or anything like that. She was signed with the intention of training her to become a wrestler. But, Was uh, she
1: the only Nitro girl brought in?
0: Well, Stacy was a, a Nitro girl at one point. Was she? Yep, she, that, that was what she was brought in. She won the, um, Miss Nitro I don't know if it's Miss Nitro, but a um a, a Nitro Girl contest. That's how she was brought in. So she auditioned. They went through, like, similar to, like, a Diva Search type style thing, which they put all through Nitro television, and Stacy was st- signed as... I think she took the name Storm to be in uh, the Nitro Girls. God, that's so bad. Yeah, but Charmelle, obviously, I don't think she... She doesn't last in WWE long, and she doesn't really... She doesn't want to progress as an actual wrestler. Charmel, I don't
1: think I've ever seen her get in the ring. She might have done maybe one match in with uh, Booker T. Even I think as
0: him defending a Nitro girl, but I don't know
1: that I ever saw her get in the ring.
0: Have you never seen the match against Survivor Jenna from Victory Road two thousand nine? I meant because like, you a good you, match, you would never forget that's, that's it. That's the
1: worst yeah. match that ever existed.
0: Yeah. If I've you have seen, seen that match. match. Got. Yeah, because you that's pretty unforgettable. If you, if you have seen that match, you trust me. I, I don't want to say watch that match to anyone who hasn't seen it. Don't ever watch that match. It's the worst match that ever existed. But if you like punishing yourself, you should watch that match. Just Jenna
1: Maraska versus Charmel is bad.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So another thing that's more, I guess, more interesting for modern day is The Rock's daughter, Simone, was born in August of 2001. Yikes,
1: so, and she's already training to be a wrestler in the performance center.
0: Yeah, Oof. she's part time training in the performance center. So, yeah, it's just 18, 19 years old now. Just, just a nice little two bit. Cause The Rock, again, this these amazing coincidences. The Rock got married, uh, just this, this month. Week. Yeah, just this week. So, yeah, yeah just, these, these big milestone moments with The Rock just coincide. <laughs> 2019, uh, so, it's almost like the kindred spirit year for 2001. Yeah. So, uh, Rock, this Simone's his daughter from his first marriage. I think they ended up, uh, like amicably separating in, uh, the mid 2000s before she started, he started dating Lauren, I think his uh, wife's name is, something like that.
1: Lauren Hashman?
0: Yeah, something, something like that. Just, I think she they worked together on a uh, one of his uh, earlier movies. Uh, I think there's like a, a thirteen year age difference. I believe together. they work on the game plan. I think there's
1: maybe an eleven year yeah. gap there, there's and got- they they seem happy. So props to them.
0: Yeah, absolutely um so that's that's like the big wwe stories there's a few things outside of wwe that kind of related but and some which aren't related at all let's go back to the xfl because that's always fun to talk about especially in the in yeah in the year 2019 in in the year 2019 and just a few days after the xfl teams and logos were introduced uh, I don't know if you're going to cover this on the Hot Tags or not with Tony later on. I so will won't try go much detail. But how how do you feel about them, just as a, a quick overview?
1: So I think the New York Guardians is a lot better than the New York, New Jersey Hitmen. I think anything is better than the Orlando Rage. But I think the Houston Roughnecks could have stayed in 2001.
0: So essentially the news broke during this period of time that after the XFL had ended in the middle of yeah just the early stages of 2001 uh the winners the la extreme had not been given their championship rings that they'd been promised post the uh in terms of they'd obviously been given the money that they'd been entitled to by winning the million dollar game but WWE, because of the xfl's uh premature closure they hadn't handed out championship rings and instead the uh winners would have to like each player would have to pay an additional $120 out of their own pocket if they wanted to get the rings made for them just like yep that's pretty much the XFL in a nutshell (laughs) just I think it's it's it's, again it's just a a little piece of Vincent Mann's psyche that he's so keen to eradicate and good luck to him all power to him to see if you can do that in 2020.
1: I think, I'll say this, I think with Oliver Luck running the thing, they have a chance.
0: Yeah, they definitely seem to have better management behind them. And I'm, after seeing the um initial, like, launch videos and stuff along those lines, and the logos, I mean, I love, I love the name The Battle Hawks. That's, like, I want every team to be called The Battle Hawks. That should be, <laughs> that should be standard practice, but I hope that they will be able to do something a little bit more substantial than they managed to do in 2001. A few other things: Jerry Lawler's back on the prowl. He he decides at this point time. Wait, what? Oh yeah, this 2001 obviously separated now from uh, Stacy Carter in in the build up towards their eventual divorce. He um goes online in in his quest to find a new girlfriend. So of course. This is, so this before Twitter, not Twitter, Twitter Tinder and. Other dating platforms like that. So essentially he just posts on a... I don't know if it's a forum or on his blog or something like that. But he just posts basically online looking for a new girlfriend that will like be faithful and can look after my needs and stuff along those lines. Because, you know, you, ha- you have to live the gimmick, right?
1: 2001.
0: <laughs> yeah, that might 2000. be the
1: most 2001 thing
0: we'll read in this entire series. hmm Few other bits and pieces there. World Wrestling All Stars, which is something that I am very much keen on us reviewing when it takes I place in October of 2001. Uh, so those not familiar, World Wrestling All Stars was essentially one of the these phoenix promotions, these intended promotions that come out of the death of WCW and ECW. Uh, Vince Russo was back in the plan, or at least being like the head honcho in creatively deciding this he was bringing in names like Jeff Jarrett and the Road Dog and Kurt Hennig and anyone that wasn't signed with WWF for free shows in Australia and so we will go back and have a look at see I think only one of those big shows is on TV there might be more but there's only one that I particularly remember and we just get to see what happens in those ones who like who's involved how good bad or indifferent it is and yeah at the very least because it happened it took place in australia and that was a country at the time that was desperate for wrestling to be like on their screens they got good crowds and good attendances but i don't think they were very favorably reviewed but we'll we'll wait and see essentially at, at this stage a lot of the um the planning work and Organization and getting people prepared to travel over to Australia to do promotional work was getting sorted. It's pretty, that's pretty much it, really. There's not like, uh, we'll, we'll have to wait a lot longer. But apparently, one of Vince Russo's plans for a match at a World Wrestling All Stars tour was a match between Disco Inferno and a boxing kangaroo. Boy, uh, <laughs> Jumpin' Joey, let's call
1: him. I'm gonna call yeah. him Jumpin' Joey
0: yeah that would uh yeah that, I mean I assume it would be a boxing match because you have to like fight in the kangaroo's wheelhouse you're in the you're in the kangaroo's uh home, so you need to follow his rules so I don't know how disco would have handled that situation <laughs> no, he's still wrestling now he's mainly getting beaten up by women, but I don't know whether he prefers that to being beaten up by a kangaroo.
1: I think I would take the kangaroo pair there eh?
0: um and now we got one final piece uh in our favourite home of New Japan. Uh, this was, again, the sad times for New Japan of 2001. And in one of the worst cases of the dangers of enokiism New Japan's IWGP champion at the time, uh, Kazuyuki Fujita, was booked in a shoe MMA match with a man who you might be familiar with called Mirko Krokop. Uh, I know
1: Mirko Krokop very well. He's had a pretty decent UFC career.
0: Yeah, he's a... Uh, a very well-known MMA fighter, considered one of the best MMA fighters of all time, and a world champion kickboxer. So essentially you're putting a guy who has some sort of really limited MMA background and is essentially by all trade a wrestler taking on a legitimate MMA fighter in a legitimate MMA match. So guess what happens? The world champion gets knocked out in 30 seconds of the uh So why would the Miracle Crocot be IWGP World Heavyweight Champion? Well, essentially he didn't want to be a wrestler. So they didn't end up, they didn't put the title on the line in the situation. I know Anoki did have a tendency to force champions to surrender the championships if they lost legitimate fights. I don't think he'd gone that far at this point. But this match was, you can watch it on YouTube. I watched the whole thing because it's short anyway, so it doesn't really take too much time out of your day. But essentially what happens is it's 20 seconds of Vegeta just attempting takedowns on Crocop. Like, keeps going for the legs, going for the legs. Crocop's just standing there, just waiting for his opportunity. And then Vegeta dives in one more time. Crocop puts his knee up and it just splits Vegeta's face wide open. Just like, he's got this huge, gruesome, like, cut, like, by the side of his face. The referee sees it because for a little while, uh, Fujita is just grabbing Crocop's legs and holding him to the ground, and so you can't really see Fujita's face. And then as soon as you can see it on camera, it's just gushing blood out of his face. I think he needed about 13 stitches afterwards to deal with it. And yeah, there's blood stoppage, referee called it off, and Crocop just absolutely destroyed their IWGP champion, making him to look out to be not really that much of a threat at all. Again, one of the dangers of making a pro wrestling champion and trying to make them a legitimate fighter. Yeah, anarchyism is a stupid concept. Oh, absolutely, and unfortunately for New Japan, at least for if we're still back in here in two thousand and one, it's going to be continuing for a few more uh, years to come. So long, long live the days of uh, Kazuchika Okada and Gedo is Bukka. I'm happy I'm happy. I'm much happier now than I probably would have been back then. So that's it for the news. Again, a little bit lapsed on the news this week, but that means we can maybe spend a little bit more time talking about our big event review for this month, which is the biggest part of the summer, SummerSlam 2001. The beginning of WWE's long-running
1: love affair with the Drowning Pool song, Bodies, or as most people would just know it, Let the Bodies Hit the Floor. Oh, absolutely. Or let the boobies hit the floor.
0: <laughs> ah, yeah, if uh, Jericho <laughs> has his wife with us, definitely. But, uh, yeah. So, SummerSlam 2001, it's uh, one of, like, I, I think it has a bit of an issue with the fact of it's a show that takes place in between two of the best SummerSlams of all time. So yeah. it do- So it doesn't have the prestige associated with it. That the other two because SummerSlam 2000 main evented by The Rock against Triple H against Kurt Angle in the middle of that heated Triple H Kurt Angle rivalry over Stephanie. God, Stephanie is causing a lot of trouble these <laughs> Yeah, back in the yeah, theater. yeah. She definitely, she definitely does. So I'm, I'm glad that she stops. She stopped doing it over the years. <laughs> she she really knew when to rein it in. That's yeah. Too Stephanie, something so Stephanie man took place at the. Check my notes here the compact center in San Jose, California, August 19th, 2001. Uh, 15,293 in a in announced uh, attendance. The the, t- the uh tagline for this show was just simply finally because this was The Rock's return because to paper. the yeah. rock, yeah. and I'm sure
1: they were thinking finally these numbers are gonna go up.
0: <laughs> well, just the buy rate numbers, uh, they did not go up unfortunately. But only, it was only slight. It was, uh, 2000 had 570,000 buys, uh, 2001 had 565,000. So it's, it's pretty on the level. But, uh, yeah, it's a, a slight decrease. Overall thoughts on the show? Meh. <laughs> like. It, it's, it's not a great summer slam. I'll, I'll go that far to so. say. This
1: also features, and this I recall vividly as a child, this is the first show that features a match that I overhyped in my mind. And did not deliver, and I was very
0: upset about. And I watched it again, and it still does not deliver. Well, we definitely go through that, go blow for blow, discuss every detail on this. So, Drowning Pool, they have this. Um, the the video package is interesting because essentially it's the it's the music video for Let the Bodies Hit the Floor, interspersed with clips of like the wrestling taking place and all the different feuds and storylines going on. I thought it was. I- It's weird, but I thought it was cool. I thought it really worked.
1: I think it's cool, and I think this is kind of like the unsung secondary rock and wrestling connection. Because they were working with MTV a lot.
0: Yeah, absolutely. After the initial pyro explosions and our introduction by the commentary team of Jim Ross and Paul Heyman. Obviously, Paul Heyman very much favoring the Alliance side of things. Jim Ross on the side of WWF. We have the first match, which is Lance Storm defending the Intercontinental Championship against Edge, King of the Ring winner, Edge, should we say. So Storm starts by trying to cut one of his, if I can be serious for a moment, promos before Edge interrupts. And there's a shot of Christian with the King of the Ring trophy and other people in the WWF locker room just trying to big up Edge and trying to get like show their support for him. You'll see this a lot throughout the next few months what do you think about stuff like this i think it's it it shows that there was a lot of stakes attached to it which i think is a good sign that there were people all backing each other and they it felt like it was important to everyone in the locker room so i'm 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 happy with the way they approached that that's fair it it seemed cheesy to me and even more so now when you watch it back it, it is a little cheesy and it's it's full of all the jobbers essentially just yeah. all the people that couldn't get on TV, so it's like a little bit. you got
1: Scotty Too Hoty and uh,
0: Albert, like and Funaki, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's it, it's okay, but I I, think I I like the sense of unity at least that the teams were having. This match is it's good. I wouldn't go any further than that, but it's a, it's a, it's a good match. Lance Storm, it's highly underrated. I think he's an excellent wrestler. Edge at this point was coming into his own as a single star. Definitely had a much bigger crowd reaction for this than he did do when he won the King of the Ring. He, th- he feels like a, a star on the rise now. And he ends up winning this one with uh, the Impaler DDT after all kinds of shenanigans. So after the match has taken place, so Edge has gone out the half-boston crab and there's been some springboards and Edge-o-matic spit- sit-out powerbomb after blocking a dropkick, which... I think we saw in the okada kota match at one point. Uh, so it's nice to see that spot just appear out of nowhere in this one. Um, Christian runs down to try and interfere, Spears interfere. Uh, attempts to spear Storm, but ends up spearing Edge instead. This is quite funny because Christian ends up being a world tag team champion with Storm it's down the road as well. Not <laughs> yeah. too long
1: after this either. <laughs> yeah.
0: So Storm kicks Christian in the face and gets a, a really good near-fall on Edge. Edge kicks out right at the last moment. Uh, Edge reverses and moves into the Imp- Impaler DDT to get the win. Wins the Intercontinental Championship. Christian celebrates with him and lets him like get like have his moment. So yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a good solid opener. Nothing super spectacular, but a well wrestled match.
1: Is it fair to say that there's nothing super
0: spectacular on anything in the show? I I would say one match is worth going back and watching just for I think the intensity of it, but pretty much beyond that, there isn't really too much to shout about. Uh, yeah, we, we cut backstage to Test cutting. I've, test is a guy who I absolutely don't know for his promo ability, but I thought his promo was really good on this one. Really justified his reason for joining the Alliance. Really showed why he wants to show loyalty to them, because the WWF showed him no loyalty. He He's uh, a guy who's consistently went under the radar in WWE.
1: I... Will go on record as saying, I'm a huge mark for his time in the WWE. I loved his work. I think his big boot was one of like the best, in my opinion. That to the point where like WWE put out this thing of who do you think ever did the best big boot, and it was just a video clips of everybody. And yeah, like Tess still holds up to this very day, and his elbow drop. For being a man of his size,
0: one of the best. Uh, after that, we have a Jericho promo where he calls, uh, Lillian Garcia, Vivian Garcia. Just, uh, it's amazing that he's doing that because, like, later down the road, he would, like, get, um, like other people's names, um, uh, mixed up as well with, um, um uh, Tom and, yeah, yeah, Tom Phillips and Todd Phillips and, uh, yeah, Mike Rome and other people along those lines. It's just like, it's nice that that was kind of consistently followed part of his character, and uh, he just talks about his natural rhino and how Stephanie's a slut and all that. Other, all the stuff that we've gone used to in this time. <laughs> you know, uh,
1: I I want somebody to call, or even if it's just Jericho, I'd like somebody to do that one more time because what a great, like it's like aha
0: it just fits this era so perfectly. So then we have. I think that's been quite a consistent trend in 2001. The random six man tag in the middle of a pay per view. Spike and AP, Spike Dudley in the APA facing Test and the Dudley boys. Uh, Again, it's just, it's just your typical WWE at the time six man tag. There's some fun spots. There's some things that seem to have no logical terms of like storytelling or booking behind it. Just people fighting for the sake of fighting it's a special trend with like the APA because the APA were pretty notorious for not selling that much or when they had to sell would get up pretty soon afterwards and start beating on their opponents again
1: yeah what do I know Bradshaw's run at the top
0: was meh for you but what do you think of the APA as a team I mean I go back now and watch them and I just I don't see. I I I like their backstage stuff, but I just don't see anything special about them. Take what's special about them is the fact that they hit hard, but that means, but that's more due to the fact that they're both cunts than, like, because <laughs> cause, cause Bradshaw's a well-defined like absolute fuckhead in terms of bullying people in the ring, but Farouk was very similar in that regard as well. He would just like decimate people in the ring for real. Uh, he he pulled no punches. Let's put put it that way. But they're counteracted by the fact that Spike Dudley is the greatest babyface to ragdoll around the ring. Like he uh, was, he's underrated in that regard. Oh yeah, perfect babyface in peril for, especially for tag team matches. There's a uh, one point towards the end of the match where Tess tosses uh, Spike off the uh, top rope, like through a table on the outside when he attempts the Dudley Dog. Uh Then Bradshaw hits the clothesline, gets a visual pin, but the referee's too busy checking on Spike that's just gone through the table. Uh Shame It Man comes out, hits Bradshaw with a chair because, of course, we need more interference after the interference in the previous match. And Test gets the pin off the back of that. So, yeah, just, just a standard six-man tag. It doesn't really make the Alliance guys look very strong because they had to get interference to help them win it. You, you know, pretty typical stuff for what the Alliance storyline ended up being. Move on past that one to Edge being congratulated backstage by Hulk or Holly, Al Snow, Matt Hardy, Lita. It's funny that Edge's been congratulated by Matt Hardy and Lita after all the things that turned out between them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy for you guys now. Hey, Lita, are you doing anything after, after the show? <laughs> <laughs> christian comes in because he's the ultimate buzzkill to tell everybody that it's super great news he's going to have a match with matt hardy for the european championship on the next episode of raw even though they're both on the same side because uh, he's more desperate about becoming the champion with edge than the showing his allegiance to the cause and then they get on a, he gets on a phone call with their grandma because this is the point in time where they're still trying to convince us that edge and christian are brothers so Christian gets a call from his grandma, but he, she only wants to talk to Edge. And so Ed, to congratulate him, so Edge takes the call. Then he hands it back, and she hangs up before she talks to Christian.
1: Poor grandma, Ed,
0: Yeah, he's a, yeah, Christian, a poor Christian, more like creepy little bastard. Then we have this really just pointless segment between Sean Stasiak and Deborah, where Sean just comes in and says he needs to talk to Stone Cold Steve Austin because he thinks that his tights have become bad luck, and he wants to get some tips from him. And Deborah just reinforces the fact that he's got a match against Kurt Angle for the title, and that he actually just go out there and try and kick some butt to impress Stone Cold. Just like, uh, just why was why was this taking up at, like two minutes of my time on this show? Because climate Stacy, you know. We see a lot more of Sean towards the end of it, but Do admittedly, really? that, well, admittedly, those segments are a uh a lot better than than this one was. We we see a lot more of him on this show, well, at least two I more mean, times. I mean, they, like, why him?
1: I, they they really didn't like ever let him go.
0: Second for generation a while. superstar, whose father was one of the own, was one of the first WWF champions. Fair enough, but they didn't do anything with him. No, of course not. But that's because he was an idiot. He's me, by him. He's me after all. Can't do much with me. You then we have. We had a uh, title-for-title match, Tajiri against X-Pac, light heavyweight champion against cruiserweight champion. So, prior to this, X-Pac had been the double champion when he defeated Billy Kidman for both titles, but then just lost one of them to Tajiri, and now he's having another one uh, a couple of shows later. Uh, Tajiri was... was, I'm amazed at how popular Tajiri was at this point in time. He's a fun character. Oh, he was... I mean, he's awesome in the ring at this point in time. He's so athletic, so fast, so his kicks are great, everything about him. And the crowd are really getting behind him, which why I think it's just so bizarre they had X Park win this match. Nobody wanted he... X Park to win this match. He looked weird, didn't he? Yeah, he looks really thin and like gangly. I mean, I know it's, uh, I'd rather that than him being like roided out of his mind, but you know, it, it just, he looks like he'd just gotten up a couple of hours before the oh. show started.
1: Uh, Yeah, and if there's no uh, weird way to say this, but I'm reading it, so I'm just going to say it on the air. We're talking about X-Pac, but Pac is back and going to fight Kenny Omega.
0: Wow, that's uh... (laughs) a... That's a little, yeah. well, we 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 at least get some See, there's some breaking news on this show. We don't always just revolve <laughs> around 2001. We we sometimes dip back into 2019. It's it's the issue of working with someone now who has a job actually reporting wrestling news. He sometimes yeah. has his other priorities. Come on, yeah, Rob! We're not... in 2001 right now. I I, even, I, I, Hulk, I do I, don't I, I do apologise. Park has even started wrestling yet. God's sake. Well, no, no. I'm sure he's doing some backyard stuff. How old is he at that point? Probably in his like late teens, I'd imagine. He's totally doing backyard stuff. Oh, yeah, I imagine so. But X Park's doing. I mean, X Park at this point isn't even 30. <laughs> Still have to keep reminding yourself of that, even though he looked about 45 coming into this match. But he, he didn't wrestle like a 45 year old, because this is one of the first times I've ever seen uh, X Park do a um, springboard plancher over the top row. Just like, yeah, just do a huge dive over the top on Stagiri. This this felt like a real cruiserweight match between two guys that knew what they were doing. I thought, yeah. I thought, this, I thought this was one of the better matches on the entire show. I'm
1: going to tell you right now, I know we crack on X-Pac a lot, but the dude knew what he was doing, and I think if he would have just gotten away from the Suck It stuff, he would have been a big star.
0: Yeah, I always like to think that if he'd have just evolved his character a little more at this point in time, he definitely could have extended his his uh, lifespan in front of the audience a bit more. But it it just like infuriates me with how overdue he was that they thought... Yeah, but wouldn't it be better if we just give, like, this guy s- some more heat? You know, like this guy who nobody cares about, let's make him both the light like, heavyweight and cruiserweight champion, rather than the guy that everyone is really, really excited for at the moment. Just, just makes no sense to me. Uh, we had, uh, and again, for the third match in a row, interference getting involved in the end, end of this but- match.
1: Well, Callum, we're at, we're at war here, Callum. you got to interfere in everything you can.
0: But these two are on the same side. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's one of the things that I wanted to mention about that, which, was quite, which I thought was a nice little attention to detail, in that the the, um, the WWF superstars and the WCW or ECW superstars were entering from different sides of the um, staging. When did they... Because uh, at some point they stopped doing that. Probably around about... Like the next show probably because they just All like right, ah, right, no right. one cares. Yeah. yeah, uh, but yeah. So Albert comes out, he gets misted by Tajiri when he tries to interfere, but X this gives X Pocket an opportunity to hit a low blow, hit the X Factor, and get the win. I just really a, a really good match, but just absolutely baffling by the decision being made in it. Yeah, Perry Saturn in the world calling for fans to help him find Moppy who'd been stolen. Yeah. Has, has a posted on Milk Cartons, talks about her being like, you can spot her hair from a mile away and she's long and slender. It's like, God, this guy had the worst gimmick. Have you ever been, uh, have you ever felt that way about a mop? I, I can't say I have. I mean, I, I might have given my vacuum cleaner in the eye a couple of times, but, you know, it's like, <laughs> that that's a bit more body to it. This and is ama- true, and, right? imagine, and imagine the suction.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say it's got a pretty good suction feature. I don't know if you get that from a mop. So you know, and, uh, maybe Saturn should have been looking at other appliances.
0: Well, at least the mop, mop would help you clean up afterwards. Uh, this is yeah, you know, benefits. Uh, we move on to Chris Jericho versus Rhino. Uh, so this is this is pretty much like Rhino is the the body replacement for Stephanie McMahon in this feud. Uh, oh, they build up. Uh... They build up not, not as big on the breast with Rhino. No, he actually looks pretty slim in this. Uh, I think nowadays Rhino might be giving Stephanie a run for his money, but the, the Rhino at this point is is actually pretty slender and can do a lot of uh, athletic stuff in the ring. I think at one point during this, he does this really fast airplane spin. It's just like it's just, I just I just love seeing old school stuff like that just being done in a new modern way, like Tyler Bate does that now. I wish he would have. Been given a rough shot. I really like Rhino. Yeah. There's one point where Jericho dives out to the ring to um to Rhino from the top rope and he catches him in a gore on the outside. And that just gets the first holy shit chant of the night. I think maybe the only holy shit chant of the night. Which is amazing because like nowadays where you basically get that every other match in WWE. <laughs> or this is awesome or something along those lines. We had we had some like interesting stuff. There was there are a few pits of like where I think they were some odd communication or odd decisions where at one point Jericho goes for a lion's soul and just lands on his feet and then just immediately elbows Rhino in the face and then hits the lion soul, which I think, okay, so you just extended that for no reason whatsoever. Finish happens close towards the end where Jericho kisses Stephanie. That's the school bully thing, isn't it? Where they, they say all the mean things about you, but they really like you inst- instead. Yeah, I think, you know, they, they
1: missed a boat when, but not putting them as a couple, because I think the underlying thing was always like, "There's something there."
0: Yeah, but Triple H wouldn't like that.
1: Yeah, how do you uh, think he felt? By the way, his his wife was being quite the little slut on these pay per views, offering favors to anyone that would beat Jericho. Like, I don't think that made Triple H feel as a man.
0: I think it's, it's hard. It's hard to really say. I think he was. At that point more concentrating on his leg. That's true. Uh, then we had uh, essentially uh, Rhino at one point employs the walls empl- applies the walls of Jericho, but he misses a gore, Jericho applies the walls of Jericho, does the line tamer aspect for good measure and gets the tap out. I think this match may have gone like a little bit too long, but it was it was overall it was well wrestled, just nothing again, nothing really spectacular. Like we it seems to be the, the trend for SummerSlam. Eh, it's good but not quite like not quite special we have a backstage segment with the rock and william regal the rock arrives after like william regal's concerned about him because he went through an announce table by booker t on smackdown but he comes back to let him know that he feels that he's about to become the WWE champion the people know it and then there's this it's just brilliant that they they separate quickly and stays out comes in runs hits the garage door behind them and then they go back to talking as if nothing happened and they're both so good at that because the rock's obviously effortlessly charismatic and a great actor, but William Regal was just right up there with him in terms of just being a perfect straight man comedy actor. Did he ever get into the acting gig? Because he would have been great. No, he always like he, he always wanted to br- just bring that side of things into wrestling. Which sure. he, he he adds a lot of like um he's he was always a big fan of the I don't want to say slapstick, but the comedy like a Mr Bean type character. In yeah. the British comedy. And he always tried to employ that side of things into his own wrestling. And I think he did it perfectly.
1: Yeah, I but, really uh, should. Uh, and it's he's one of my favorites. And
0: I think he's one of the true jack of all trades. Uh, then we have a ladder match for the Hardcore Championship. Jeff Hardy defending against Rob Van Dam.
1: This is the match I was referring
0: <laughs> yeah, to. Yeah. This match is, in some elements, really wild and innovative. And in other aspects, completely out of control and unstructured. Just, these are two guys who don't know how to wrestle to a script. (laughs) Or don't really care about a story. They just want to go out there and look cool. At least at this point in their careers. So a lot of the stuff I do is really cool. Like there's a lot of slingshots with the ladders. There's a lot of dives to the outside. Uh, superple- there's a superplex off the top of the ladder. There's a sunset flip powerbomb. The crowd is going crazy for some of these spots. Like, a diving kick where we would knock people off the ladder. A, a, a rolling thunder onto Jeff Hardy laying out on the ladder. There, there's some great spots and some great... uh Like, there's clearly, like, they're taking a lot of damage to deliver as good a match as possible. But it's so just from one spot to the other... It's just you do a move, I do a move, you do a move, I do a move. There's no fight to it. Just it just doesn't have that flow or that story that you expect from from at least from a one on one ladder match. This is the kind of thing that you'd think, Oh yeah, that's cool for a Morty Man for tag team money match. In the where, bank yeah, where or... yeah, where there's tons of people going flying at any point in time and everyone's trying to get their shit in and stuff like that. But when it's one on one, you need to have a bit more of a like a, a character to it and this just felt like two guys doing moves in their backyard. Yeah, and I think,
1: in retrospect, this is the beginning of that era. Oh, we're just going to do crazy spots, and, you know, this is what people came to see. And I always thought that this would be one of the, you know, greatest ladder matches of all time. It's freaking Rob Van Dam and Jeff Hardy. If this was booked on an indie show today, like, I would still expect it to be pretty good. And it just never delivered. But on the flip side, this probably really put RVD over with Vince McMahon. And if you look through the history of
0: the Alliance, RVD is one of the few guys that actually gets over. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I I don't know if anybody listening would be surprised to hear that they managed to botch the finish. It's amazing. No. RVD and Jeff Hardy fighting each other, botch the finish. It's you know, crazy. But uh, what happened was there was this point where they... RVD sends Jeff Hardy swinging from the title like he did for the spear at WrestleMania. But instead of climbing to the top of a ladder and doing a spear, RVD climbs to the top rope and tries to do a a, a diving, spinning back heel kick. And he completely misses Jeff Hardy. <laughs> gets nowhere near the height that he needs to in any way connect with Jeff Hardy. And so he misses. RVD just uh, Jeff Hardy just falls down. RVD gets on... RVD pushes Jeff Hardy off a ladder to make up for the missed spot, then climbs the ladder himself, just takes the title down, and that's it. Very, yeah. very, very rushed, uncoordinated finish. This just about held up the way it did when I was a child. Mm-hmm. Backstage, we go to see uh, Shane McMahon gets a, gives a big gift to Booker T before his big match. It's a bookend made out of the announce table. He put the rock through on SmackDown. Uh, what move did he use, cow? Cal? Uh, use the rock bottom. If according to Jr. <laughs> but no. uh, according to Paul Heyman, it's the uh, bookend. Obviously, it's so a so bookend made with a uh, bookend. Yeah, yeah, a bookend as a result of a bookend, and uh which is funny because basically the whole storyline that the rock had been building up is the fact that Booker T can't read, so <laughs> the fact that he's got bookends at the end of that as well. Is so yeah, just a little pep talk before their match. And now we move on to always the most fun part of these reviews. It's the Undertaker match. Brothers of Destruction against DDP and Canyon in a steel cage for both sets in the tag team championships. I, okay. I, you go ahead. first. Undertaker in 2000. This is this his worst year. I think this is his worst year. I yeah I legitimately hate the Undertaker at this point. I'm feeling if I if I was what, in 2001 I'd be feeling the same way about the Undertaker as I feel now about Baron Corbin. That's like how bad like I, I really despise the Undertaker at this, at this like going back and this that it's really sullying his legacy for. It That's it's just like, so bad. What how I can best describe this match is a giant masturbation exercise by both the Undertaker and Vince McMahon. I can imagine bits of man jacking off during the entire match about how much better WWF is to WCW. And it's just this is just an opportunity for. So Canyon, United States champion at the time, let's forget, and DDP, one of WCW's biggest top stars from the late 90s onwards, just get absolutely decimated for the for beaten from pillar to post throughout the steel cage repeatedly by Kane and the Undertaker. Mostly the Undertaker but can get his few shots in as well. I mean it's appalling. It's absolutely appalling. There's no there's no ifs, ands or buts about it. Structurally it's awful. if there any attempt to try and build up the WCW guys, completely miss the mark. Yeah, it's just it's just an opportunity to show who the real big dog in the yard is.
1: I would like to point out that Diamond Dallas Page was one of the best homegrown talents in WCW history, maybe right underneath Goldberg, and they did this. Well, of course they did. But, like, this is why they would struggle for a while, Callum, because they don't want to fucking build any star that they didn't
0: create. Yeah. You know what I hate about the Amatoka? There's many things at this point in time in his career. When he's coming out to his entrance and he does those arm shakes, wow, you think you're so hard. You think you're so important that you're so special that you have to do the arm things because you're about to go in there and kick some ass and this is all real to you. Just like, he's such a dick in this, t- this 20 years, 20 years. I, I, I just watch him. I, I I managed to put myself in the mindset of like pretending these. I'm watching this in 2001. I'm just watching him think, I'll oh, fuck off and like retire already.
1: Yeah. I, what's scary to me about that is. We're saying all these things about him, and this is supposed to be a character transformation to allow him to be more of
0: himself. And it makes me wonder if The Undertaker is like that in real life. Yeah, it is, it is a little concerning. So, essentially, the story of the match is Canyon and Undertaker beat them from pillar to post. Canyon climbs out, and they let Canyon go so they can concentrate on DDP. Canyon leaves his friend behind dry because you can't have friends in the uh, alliance, obviously. Uh... Well,
1: well, he's just being a good friend. You know, he realizes that stalking and being a creeper is wrong and he is leaving the cage to allow his friend
0: to suffer the consequences
1: of his actions
0: uh this is the same canyon who did a stalker angle with buff bagwell's mother in wcw
1: <laughs> well you see uh forklift instead of poles there's no redeeming qualities here
0: <laughs> no <laughs> so, uh, DDP just gets a beating from both brothers of destruction, mainly the Undertaker, because he has to show his dominance over them. Beats him with steel chain, throws him into the cage, picks him up from pinfall attempts, and then Undertaker does the the classic, okay, you've had enough of your beating, stay away from my family, and is going to let him escape, until Kane convinces him otherwise, he down DDP off the top rope, and then hits the last ride, and pins him to win both sets of tag titles. A complete <laughs> waste of time. <sighs> I, I prefer the term masturbation exercise. I think that nails it. Yeah, yeah. this is. This is a pure self-gratification for The Undertaker. I, I, I'm sure Robbie would be surprised to hear that uh, the very next night on Raw is when Sarah defeats uh, DDP one-on-one in a... <laughs> no! I mean, oh, you're not aware of that?
1: You don't say. Oh I mean, uh,
0: yeah. I yeah. Mean, you by, might, yeah. You...
1: By God.
0: Yes, Diamond Dallas so that... Page. You would you would think he was WWE World Champion at one point. Oh no, it's amazing. Uh, Sarah's I think that was Sarah's one and only match in WWE, just pinning DDP, uh, clean with the Undertaker style pinfall. For...
1: Well, listen, I want you to know that Diamond Dallas Page would rechannel this energy, and he would want you to know that that's not a bad thing.
0: It's a good thing. Do you know what's also a good thing, Rob? Cardano donate to the Patreon. Pokemon. No, donate uh, to the uh,
1: Patreon. Oh <laughs> <laughs> like interrupt it. my
0: plug, yeah, try and interrupt my uh yeah, so I haven't thrown out too many plugs here, so just before we get towards the end, final two matches, if you'd like to throw a few spare bucks in a way, maybe we could do some more retro reviews and other podcasts outside of the regular like show previews and predictions and post shows. Uh, if you throw a few money towards the Cat Moment Patreon, it could be as little as much as you want. Just helps us keep the lights on around here, helps support Tony and me and Rob in our endeavours here. Helps us to do a few more fun things. And you can also support us monetarily by buying a T-shirt or some other merchandise on the Redbubble or T-Public uh, shops. There's awesome. loads of great stuff in there. Maybe we should try and uh, petition Tony to get a 2001 shirt made.
1: Yeah, I think we definitely need a 2001 Wrestling Odyssey t-shirt. Yeah. And I'll throw this out there. I want to do 2002 Wrestling Odyssey because I think 2002, there's so much meat on the bone. And there's so much fun to talk about there. So donate to the Patreon so we can continue this journey back in time.
0: Okay, so and just a few little plugs out of the way. So we move on to another backstage segment where The Rock's talking to a trainer and Stasiak attempts it again, dives over the trainer table and then The Rock and the trainer pretend that nothing's happened again. These segments are harmless fun. I know it's a, it just makes Stasiak a joke, but if that's how you're going to use him, then you might as well make it fun. And these segments were. And then you had both locker rooms gathering together, ready to watch the WWF title match, uh, which is Steve Austin defending against Kurt Angle. I really like this match.
1: Yeah, they have a great rivalry, and they have great matches. My only issue with all of these matches, in retrospect, is I hate Stone Cold Steve Austin as a heel, and not in the way that I'm supposed to hate heels, but I just, it doesn't work for me.
0: If it has to be these two, then this is the kind of match I want to see them doing. It was intense, vicious, like these two play off the fact that they it feels like they legitimately hate each other. They play off each other so well. There's a lot of attacking the legs from both sides. There's super, tons of suplexes. Austin using a superplex. He, he he uses quite a lot of suplexes in 2001 for a guy with a pretty damaged neck.
1: Yeah, because I think he really... I think this whole run for him was his desire to
0: get back to being the working heel. And the big story throughout the entire duration of this match is that Austin can't keep Angle down. So he he hits a stunner early, but Angle kicks out of that. And then uh, he stuns Angle again, but Angle falls to the outside. And then he throws him against steel post, throws him against the barricade, against the announce table, just beats him all over the place. Angle's busted wide open. They do this great spot where Angle's... uh Austin's coming back over the barricade after throwing Angle to the outside and throwing him back in. Angle grabs him on the barricade and locks in the ankle lock and just pulls him around. You see, like, some really great, like, just brawling on the outside. Angle does a belly to belly on the outside to Austin, and a back suplex on the outside, and that's just, a back suplex is one of those moves which is far too dangerous for the amount of, uh, reaction that it gets. Cause, cause that, a lot of things could go wrong with that move, and it gets zero reaction from the crowd most of the time.
1: I, I was gonna say, I really like, as you said, the, the intensity in this match is here, I think this is how you make a star, and this is Kurt Angle's probably his first real
0: foray into the wrestling machine. Yeah, he does feel a lot like that in this match. Uh, there's a lot of... He does, at one point, the uh, Bret Hart pin spot from trying to try and escape the million-dollar dream. Uh, so you thrown a few little bits there, because obviously Austin was the one that fell to that to Bret Hart anyway, so the guy who's learned from that from that, those mistakes over the the years you have another stunner by austin but angle kicks out again and the pops are getting like a lot bigger for these kickouts angle does an angle slam but gets two count because he couldn't capitalize on pin quickly enough and then once he's doing the ankle locks and all the other stuff austin realizes he can't beat this guy this guy this is this is angles night so he punches el hebner and that's a so, dick heel boo yeah so so yeah, he does that. The later low blows, Angle, but um, Mike Chioda, uh comes out and so he stuns Mike Kyoda, Then he hits Tim White with the title when they come out. So there's just like it's an endless stream of WWF referees coming out to try and do the pinfalls and stuff like that. But and then finally, Angle hits the Angle Slam, it has the clear pinfall on Austin. But it's Nick Patrick who's come out to do the final thing, and he disqualifies Austin for beating up referees. A very, very flat and drab end to what was a great match leading up to that. But I'm kind of okay with it in the sense that they had a a longer-term plan for Angle on the next show. So at least they had a plan for what they were going to do next. And the reason for doing it, it, it clearly ends this one very flat. Angle beats up Tim White afterwards, puts him in the ankle lock to at least give the crowd some kind of pop. But, yeah, it was, it, it, was a, it was a very good match with not the best finish. Yeah, and they would go on to have better matches. I don't know if... I mean, I know we're obviously going to see the next one at Unforgiven as well, their their big title match there. But uh, it'll be interesting to see if that is better than this match, because I, I still think at, in the core components of this match was really, really well done. It'd just be interesting to see if the uh, Unforgiven match... Like, lives up to those, uh, to these standards. But, um, and, uh, I really liked post-match. JR really gets in Heyman's face about this. About saying how Austin can't beat Angle. And, like, Angle has Austin's number and stuff along those lines. And Heyman's just standing there taking it from JR. Just, yeah. it's a, they, they had really good chemistry.
1: Really good chemistry. And really good for this angle in particular. Like, yes. Yeah. Heyman is just the snarky little, Yeah, you know, Austin's still the champion, and and JR being the betrayed friend and loyalist to the WWF, just like, ah, you know, I I love it. I love JR. He tried his hardest to get over Austin as a heel, but it just, it did not work.
0: You know what I I like like the most about their pairing? I know it's something that, I'll compare it to how things are now today and all that stuff, but they, they, don't feel scripted at all. They don't feel like they're working towards... Obviously, they, they, they're they telling the story, but they're telling it in a way that feels organic. Right. And I really appreciate that about both them at this point in time in their careers. People talk about, obviously, J.R. now maybe not be up to scratch, and Heyman obviously doesn't do commentary anymore, but at this point in time, they were both on their own game. Uh,
1: I still think J.R. is the one of the best in the game, and it's calls like this,
0: so I do think that... For a long time. Yeah. Absolutely. And now we move on to the the final match, the actual main event, which was uh, The Rock uh, facing Booker T for the World Heavyweight Championship. I I think even though the WWE Championship is the more prestigious one, it makes sense to have The Rock as the headliner. I mean, he is is the big draw for this show. So I think it makes sense. And it it gives Booker T a, a better platform as well. The most surprising thing about this match
1: is that... Only a few months ago, Rock took to Instagram in 2019 to say, this is one of his favorite WWF programs of all time. And I don't feel that way. I, I don't know. I just never had that level of intensity to me.
0: No, I, I completely get where you're coming from in that regards. Um, I think the, the the match is not bad by any stretch of imagination. I think it's, it's pretty good. But I don't think it lived up to the other... Title match that took place. It definitely didn't really live up to main event billing for a SummerSlam show. It's, it it has its moments. There's some. Um, I think Booker T gets a lot of offense in this. Probably more than you'd be expecting, considering how people consider the alliance against WWF storyline that goes on. I think this is the one and only time I've ever seen The Rock perform a la magistral cradle. <laughs> in a yeah, in he a has these
1: weird moments of like, I'm a wrestler. I'm it's, gonna do a wrestle.
0: At one point, the Rock hits a uh, deliberate punch to the dick of Booker T, and uh, Jr. acts like a Ke- like Kevin Kelly during a Yarno match and says, "Oh, was that a was that a low blow? Uh, I think I, my monitor might have gone out or something." So just uh, I I like the Kevin Kelly spot when he does that, so I found that funny as well. Uh, Shane distracts, cause constant distractions on the outside for the Rock, glam Booker T to get an advantage, lets him just get a few kicks and shots into it. Booker goes for a steel chair that Shane introduced, but that allows Shane to hit the rock with the title. Uh, So the APA come out to even the odds and uh, get a bit of revenge on Shane for the six-man tag earlier. Fruit chases him around the ring and he runs straight into a clothesline from hell on the outside, which was, that was a brutal clothesline.
1: That's good continuity, I can appreciate that.
0: Yeah, I I can appreciate that they paid that off towards the end and that played a part in it. Uh, booker hits the bookend which rock uh, jr continues to refer to as him doing the rock bottom uh gets kick out rock then hits the people's elbow but shane pulls out the referee when he has the pin so Shane, so rock decides to hit a rock bottom to shane on the floor so shane is getting a lot of abuse on the outside shane stranger shane taking that sort of like risky abuse on his body that sounds so unlike him
1: yeah why ever would shane mcmahon do that
0: uh, so the finish is Booker T hits a scissor kick, goes for the uh does that, and as he's celebrating the fact that he's done the spinneroni, the rock is uh, nipped up in the background, uh, Caught catches Booker in the rock bottom, and gets the pin, and becomes the WCW champion. So, the
1: payoff to this is that,
0: boy, Booker T is stupid. Yeah, that is... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like... well, that was the rock storyline all along, and Booker T just proves that he is stupid. <laughs>
1: But I'll give them credit for actually paying that off of, wow, you're stupid. You got him beat and you're going to do this freaking
0: breakdancing move. I, I have <sighs> to say, I, I love that nip up because it's just like, he's been taken out by the sense kick. He's in the corner and then because he just take it just takes his eye off the ball for a couple of seconds and the rock is straight on his feet. I, think, I know that's like, it kind of. In in some ways it can bury this as a kick as a move, but in other ways it just looks it's just such a cool visual. Uh, it 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 makes me um brings back memories to I think uh the um the the first Rock versus Cena match, where Cena takes his eye off the ball, loses concentration, decides to do a people's elbow for himself, and when he bounces exactly off the ropes, yeah he nips yeah. up, hits the rock button, and wins the match. And I think that's that's one of the best finishes to a rock match I've seen. Uh, uh, I
1: think it's pretty good. I think Rock does. Maybe the second best nip up, only because Shawn Michaels is always going to be number one.
0: Well,
1: it's because Shawn always does a
0: dive. He does the dive, and he always like he, when he does the um flying forearm, he always just rolls out, and he's pretty much dead on his on his back. And then he does it, and it's like it's like a revival for him.
1: Like, they did do a double nip up spot, um, Rockland nipping up at Summerslam apparently because he does it again next year, and yeah. I think those are the only couple times I can really recall. Hey, look, Rock nipped up, and it's a it's a cool like I'm an action movie star thing. Mm. I like it. Good, good moves on the Rock. But again, I think we're really entering the final days of his career. We don't even know it yet.
0: No, there's still there's just like a few years left before he's full time Hollywood still. So had to get the make the most of him as, as we can, and he's with us for the rest of the 2001 journey, so that's that's a good thing. And well, we've reached uh, the conclusion for the uh, this part of our 2001 journey. Uh, so SummerSlam 2001, uh, a decent show. A one solid sat, six, like yeah, out of ten. So, yeah, six seven out of ten. Maybe a six and a half if you're being generous. It's stuck, unfortunately, in between two of the best Summer Slams of all time, so it it will never get the same that same level of recognition, and it doesn't really merit that level of recognition anyway. But it it's too easy for it to get crowded out by the two shows that the show that preceded it and the show that followed it. So yeah, that's it for us for August. So in the September edition, two reviews for you, two big show event reviews alongside all of the reheated tags and news from September of two thousand and one. Obviously, we'll be looking at the pay-per-view Unforgiven uh, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, I wonder where, wonder who's uh, I mean, there's somebody uh, in particular who's from that area. I can't really remember, but.
1: Yeah, but Burt Baker's not wrestling yet.
0: Oh yeah, of course. Uh, uh, but we're also going to, because this is also the final month which we're in a pre 9-11 world. That's so scary. Yeah, September the 11th takes place, just a Again, a couple of weeks after SummerSlam takes place, and the most, arguably one of the most earth-shattering events that has ever taken place in human history. Probably go through some sort of like little retrospective of that. Obviously, not going to break down that in detail, but Smack, WWE holds a special place in that regards of having what they consider the first one of the first big live, like mass events that took place in the wake of that on these. Uh, Thursday edition of SmackDown, where they did a live show in like remembrance of everyone that lost their lives in that event. But uh, yeah, so we'll cover that as well. So you get you get two reviews there, as well as all the other news and events that take place. So, so thank you very much for joining us on this uh, next stage of our journey. Uh, a few final plugs to throw out there before we send you on your merry way. You can you should obviously be Uh, subscribing to the YouTube channel if you haven't already, ringing the little bell for notifications to let you know when 2001 and any other Smack Talk podcast is coming out. Uh, next week you can look forward to some hot tags and the predictions for All Out. Everything. Yeah, for All Out and NXT UK as well as the post shows for those ones. Uh, very breaking news, which I assume will be covered very much both either in the All Out predictions or in the hot tags of uh, Moxley no longer being involved yeah. in All Out, it seems.
1: This is literally breaking as we're recording it to the point where it caught me off guard. Yes, John Moxley's out with a MRSA infection in his elbow, and Pac will be replacing him next Saturday night against Kenny Omega, so learn more about that on the preview show for
0: All Out coming to you next week on this very channel. Yep, so again make sure you are subscribed or you're following us and the podcast feeds if you're listening to us through those mediums. Other stuff you should be doing is checking out the website, smarcamoment.com, all the weekly articles, all the other features and events taking place on there. Uh follow us on Facebook and Twitter, join the Mega Maniacs, get the discussion rolling in there. Wanna throw out a few bits of your for your uh,
1: patreon Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at dudeForise. You can check out your wrestling news. You can check out Fightful, which is going to have all the latest breaking news on everything going on with John Moxley and Boots on the Ground at StarCast. So, you know, stay tuned to Fightful for all that stuff.
0: And finally, you should check out all the weeklies at smartgownmoment.com. Yep, so again, if you want to support us monetarily and see more shows like this, then donate to the Patreon or send a bit of money our way through uh, Redbubble or TeePublic. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at Weekmeister 14 again, check out Power Rankings and other weekly articles on SmackDownMoment.com, and yeah, that will do us in for another edition of 2001 Arresting Odyssey, so I thank you very much for joining us on this trip back in time, and we'll see you next month. But for now, this has been another SmackDown Moment, and we are being counted out.